Masechet Nedarim, Daf Ayin He. We begin with the Mishnah. Haomer leishto kol nedarim shetidori mikan ad sheavom imakom peloni harehen kayamin. We saw this a few dapim ago. A man tells his wife, and he vows that you will make from now until I come back from this place. I'm going on a trip for a few days. Any vows that you make while I am away, um, they are. They want. I want to, uh, them to be ratified. Lo amar kelum. That is a meaningless statement. On the other hand, Haden Mufarin, if he says that they should be nullified, that is a machloket, says they are nullified, Chachamim say they are not nullified. All right, so it's easy to understand Chachamim, they are consistent, and they say that in, in, in both cases one cannot ratify or nullify future vows in one blanket statement. And that makes sense. If there is no vow, the vow does not exist yet. She didn't take it yet. Well, then how could you ratify something that that does not exist? How could you nullify something that does not exist? So that would be Chachamim. However, for it to be Eliezer, why would he make a difference between ratifying and nullifying? There's uh, um, many explanations. One is that uh, it wouldn't make sense to ratify anything that she may say. Who knows? What if she says something that will be uh, damaging, uh, that will be harmful? All right? Does he really want to ratify across the board anything that she says? Um, whereas nullifying, that makes more sense. This is, I don't want any vows. Right? There's no down side to having zero vows. It's actually good not to have any vows. Um, and so it makes more sense that a person uh, would really mean a, a blanket nullification, but a blanket ratification, it's hard, that's harder. Uh, second explanation is that while you, you cannot ratify something that doesn't exist, um, because it just doesn't exist, so how can you give a positive stamp of approval on something that doesn't exist? Whereas to cancel, you can pre-cancel, it doesn't exist, and now it will certainly not even come into existence. That's kind of the um, understanding that we're going to see from the following explanation in the Mishnah, as well as it's going to come up in the Gemara. Amar Rabbi Eliezer, Im hefer nedarim shabau lichlal isur, lo yafer nedarim shelo bau lichlal isur. So Rabbi Eliezer defends his position uh, that you can nullify vows uh, that will come in the future based on a kavach If you can nullify, if that is, if the husband can nullify vows of the wife that already came into existence, she made a vow in the morning. That vow exists, right? If, if, right, right now, it's in, it's in play. And so if he, can, if he can void a vow that already exists on that day, then all the more so the husband should be able to uh, nullify a vow that didn't, does not yet have a prohibition, right? If a prohibition already exists, then that would be harder to take away than a prohibition that doesn't yet exist. And so if the husband has the right to nullify her vow that's already there, all the more so he should be able to nullify a vow that has not yet had taken place, a prohibition that has not yet uh, occurred. Okay, that's the Kava Chomer. The rabbis um, uh, uh, counter, Amru lo harehu omer ishah yekimenu veishah yeferenu et she badichlal hekem badichlal hefer lo badichlal hekem lo badichlal hefer in that chapter in Bemidbar chapter 30. That has all the laws 
of, uh, of vows and nullifying them, it says that her husband can ratify them and her husband can nullify them. By putting these two clauses back to back, it's comparing ratification to nullification. Anything that can be ratified can also be nullified, whereas anything that cannot be ratified cannot be nullified. So you have to say the same law for both. And so the, the Rabbanan are consistent. We say the same law for both. The, the husband cannot ratify or nullify um, anything in the future. And that's uh, no, that's good. That's based on this Hekesh, whereas uh, this is a challenge to Rabbi Eliezer. Um, you see from this Pasuk that your Kalvachomer should not work because you have to do either bo- all or nothing, either both of them. It's, she can do both or nothing. And you agree already that the husband cannot ratify, so you should agree that the husband cannot nullify. All right, that's the two opinions in the Mishnah. And now we're going to ask a question according to Rabbi Eliezer. Uh, question is that when the husband, before he goes away on a trip, he says, vows that you make will be nullified. And then he goes away. And she makes a vow, I'm not going to drink wine. Um, so according to Rabbi Eliezer, that works. But how does it work? Is it that the vow uh, applies and then is immediately canceled, or does it not? Does it not take effect at all? It doesn't even apply, not even for one second. That's the question. Um, so the nafkamina, what would be a practical difference? I mean, either way, there is no vow. Uh, so what's the difference if it? Um, it kind of appears for a second, but then like a, you know, like a radioactive particle disappears. Or if you just say that the, um, his, his statement uh, prevents any vows from even coming to existence at all, what would be a practical difference? For example, if there's someone else there who hears this wife's vow, let's just say he has a friend over. And the wife makes a vow, I'm not going to drink wine. And then the friend hears that and says, Va'ani, me too. That's a good vow. I want to also do that. In general, when someone makes a vow, another person hearing it doesn't have to say the whole phrase of the vow. He could just say, he could just say me too. And then the vow will apply to that person as well. So in that case, So if you say that her vow does apply, um, it does come in, into existence, and immediately the friend says, Va'ani, so then that friend will have a vow not and will not be able to drink wine. And even though for the wife, because the husband made this clause before he left, so for the wife, uh, after a second, it will be nullified. But for that one second, it did exist. And therefore, the, the friend who said Va'ani right away will have a vow upon her. Whereas, if you say it does not apply at all, this preventative measure that the husband says, right, no vows means that she can't even make, create a vow at all. In that case, when the friend says, me too, she will not be obligated to the vow because she's copying something that doesn't exist. And so the copy doesn't, does not exist either. All right, so that would be the practical ramification. And now we're going to have about uh, four uh, different attempted proofs. Uh, we'll see three of them today and then one on the next uh, daf. So my, what is the answer? 
So answer no, proof number one. Look at Rabbi Eliezer's language in our very Mishnah in his Kavachomet. He said, if a husband can nullify vows that have already come into existence and became a prohibition, meaning vows that she already made, let's say in the morning, and he hears about it in the afternoon. So all the more so, uh, can the husband, can't a husband uh, nullify a vow that has not yet become a prohibition? So you see it says that it has not bec- yet become a prohibition. That means that a vow that she makes in the future does not even become a prohibition at all. So you see we from this language that it does not apply at all. Isn't this a good proof that the prohibition does not even come, in, come into existence? And the answer is no. No, that doesn't, the Mishnah doesn't, doesn't say that they will not, will not come into existence, that they do not come into existence at all, but rather says they have not yet come into existence because at the time that the husband makes the statement, the vow was still going to be in the future. It's going to be next week um, while he's away. So at the time, it really is a point is simply that if he can nullify a vow that already happened and created a prohibition, all the more so he can nullify a vow beforehand to a prohibition that has not come. But at the time that she then makes the vow, it could very well be that the vow does come into existence, the prohibition does come into existence, and then it's nullified. But that should be easier to nullify since it was um, already preempted. Um, with this nullification beforehand. Um, but the language of the Mishnah uh, does not mean that it does not come to existence at all, it just has not yet, yet come into existence. Okay, so there's no proof from there. Um, a second proof, that's uh, Braita, we find a we find um, this statement in a Tosefta as well. Tashema amalehen erebi eliezer. So this is, Tosefta is adding another, uh, another argument that Rabbi eliezer makes to defend himself. He says, He's making a different kavachomet here. Um, a pers- generally, a man himself, he, if he makes a vow, he cannot undo his own vow, even on the same day, even one minute later. If I make a vow, then I say, I'm not going to eat donuts. Um, and then a minute later, I say, oh, you know what? I really want to eat donuts. I can't undo my own vow. I can go to a chacham, I can go to a bedin, uh, undo the vow, but a man cannot undo his own vow. So that's the basis of the chomet. If in a situation where a person cannot undo his own vows that he already made, that's talking about a man, but yet he can undo vows beforehand that he has not yet made. In other words, a man can say, listen, any vow, I know tomorrow I might be in the mood to make a vow, but I want to say from now that any vows I make tomorrow will be nullified. That's in fact what we do uh, um, uh, 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 on Yom Kippur or before Rosh Hashanah um, as part of the Hatarat Nedarim. We also say a statement for the future that any vows that we make in the coming year will not will not apply. So look at that. A man cannot uh, remove uh, nullify vows 
from in the past, but he can nullify vows in the future. So, with that as a basis, makom in a place where a man can nullify his wife's wife's vow that she made already in the past. So that's certainly true. That's the basic law of a husband nullifying his wife's vow. All the more so, he should be able to nullify his wife's vow in the future. Okay, that's the Tosefta. Now let's analyze. My love de ishto dumya dile. Mahu de la chaylin af ishto name de la chaylin. So look how this Rabbi Eliezer in this Badaita is comparing a man's wife, a man's vows to a wife's vows. And just like a man's vows do not even uh, take effect at all when he says a statement from in the past, right? If they took effect, um, even for a second, then the man would have no right to nullify because a man cannot nullify his own vows. So, no, the only way to explain how a man can uh, nullify his future vows is to say that when he makes the statement on Yom Kippur, that means that any vows that he will make do not even come into existence. And that's why, that's how it works. So, just like a man's vows do not come into existence, so too a wife's vows do not come into existence if the husband made a declaration beforehand. So isn't this a good proof that they don't come into existence? Sounds like a good proof. And we answer, no, la hakedita hakedita. No, maybe these are separate categories, and maybe men's vows work differently from women's vows. A man's vow, yes, he can do this before, and it doesn't come into existence. But even though we're comparing them for the purposes of the Kabachomed, that doesn't mean that they're exactly the same in all ways. And so it could very well be that a woman's vows work differently, and they do come into existence. But according to the Eliezer, we should still compare them and say, just like a man can nullify them from before all the more so a man can nullify his wife's vows from before even though for his wife they do come into existence for a second and then go away and the logic would still work and so we don't have to compare them precisely all right so that takes care of the second uh the second proof and now we're going to try for a third proof this next baraita does not have an exact parallel in the Tosefta, but looking at the Tosefta can still help us because the Tosefta does have something that we don't have here, which is something that Rabbi Eliezer says, uh, comparing our cases of vows to a mikveh. Um, so Rabbi Eliezer already presented some comparison to a mikveh, and this baraita here is probably connected to the Tosefta and what is the response that the Rabbanan told it to be Eli Ezer. Okay, but we can analyze this response in itself. Uh, we're going to see in uh, 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 when we turn the page that there is another Baraita or continuation of this Baraita in which the rabbis give yet another refutation of it to be Eli Ezer. And so that's what we're going to be seeing now, these two Baraitot that both counter to be Eli Ezer. And so here, the rabbis are countering with their own Kalbachomer. Now this Kalbachomer is a false one. It's going to lead to a false conclusion conclusion and their point uh, their point is that Rabbi said you cannot make your kavachomer because if you apply that same a similar logic to a case of mikveh you're going to get to a wrong uh, a wrong conclusion and therefore your premise your your kavachomer also um, it does not work. Okay, so here's what they say. A mikveh, right? Regular ritual mikveh. Here's one that was found at Qumran, right? You see the stairs that go down. There's no basement there, so obviously it's a mikveh. 
um, a mikveh which takes something tameh and transforms it to be tahor, right? A person is tameh, he goes in, uh, it's his past tumah, right? He was tameh yesterday, he became tameh yesterday. He goes into the mikveh and now he becomes tahor, so it, it removes the tumah. And masil ala tehorim tameh. But a mikveh cannot work for future tumah. If you are tahor now, uh, you can't go in the mikveh and say, I'm going to go in the mikveh in order to protect myself from becoming tameh tomorrow. That doesn't work, right? You can't preempt becoming tameh. So that's, that's the analogy. Mikveh only works for the past, but not for the future. Adam shen ma'aleh tatemein mitumatan eno dinhu shelo yasila la tehodin militameh. That is a curious analogy. We're comparing to the mikveh to a person's own body. If a person would swallow some item, has to be has to be a vessel. What's a vessel that a person can swallow? I don't know. I'm thinking has to be really small. Maybe a thimble, right? A thimble is a vessel. It's a useful item, and um, it could it therefore can receive tumah. Now, a person, um, uh, if, if there's a thimble that's a tameh thimble, and a person swallows it, it does not thereby become tahor. A, a human body does not act like, as a mikveh. Even if that person, in fact, would go into a mikveh, with the thimble inside their stomach, they, that thimble still would not become tahor because a person's body is preventing the uh, thimble from touching any water. And so even though the person becomes tahor, the thimble inside remains tameh. Okay, so a person's body does not purify something, yet... Um, if uh, it should it so it does not pure because not it does not purify something so therefore all the more so should it not save uh, something from becoming tameh. Um, now actually the law is the opposite. If someone would swallow a tahor thimble, right? Their their tahor they swallow a tahor thimble. It's in their stomach, and then that person touches a dead mouse, and the person becomes tameh. Ironically, the thimble remains tahor. So a person's body actually acts as a barrier um, to the thimble inside. And so that, that is the law. But yet, based on the logic of the Kavachomed, we would think the opposite. That if a person's body cannot trans, uh, um, uh, change past Tum'ah into Tahor, if they already swallowed it, all the more so it should not be able to prevent um, future Tum'ah from uh, from doing from making uh, what's inside him Tameh. But yet, that is in fact the law. A person's body cannot make something Tahor from the past that was Tameh, but yet it can protect something from becoming tahor in the future. Um, so what you see from here is that the kavachomer doesn't work. Shema mina Okay, from this baraita, we can deduce that Rabbanan's interpretation of Rabbi Eliezer is that it could only work, uh, Rabbi Eliezer's uh, rule can only work by it not taking, the vow not taking effect in the first place. Um, uh, just like regarding the the, the the tumah, the thimble inside the person's body. How does it work? It's not that the person's body, if, if the person swallowed it while it was tahor, 
Um, and then the person becomes Tameh. It's not that when he touches the dead mouse, that thimble becomes Tameh for a second, but then becomes Tahor by being in the person's body. That's not how it works. But rather, it, it, it works because the Tum'ah does not transfer into in the first place into the thimble, and it does not even apply at all. There is no Tum'ah. That's, what, that's how a person's body protects the thimble. And so therefore, by analogy, it would be the same thing with a vow. A person, uh, a husband can, yeah, nullify vows in the past. That vow already existed, his wife's vow, and now he can make it uh, nullify it. But for the future, well, the rabbis don't think this works at all. But the assumption uh, uh, to make it work for to be Eliezer would be that um, the, uh, the the husband the husband statement beforehand prevents the vow from ever taking place because if the vow existed uh, then how could you how could you preempt and nullify it from beforehand there's no there's no way to do it so it must be that it doesn't exist uh, at all to begin with okay so that would be the implication of what how uh, the way that the rabbanan understand it be eliezer and we can understand that through the logic of their rejection because in the logic of their rejection, the thimble cannot become Tameh in the first place, um, and then the person's body make it Tahor. It must be that the Tum'ah does not, it does not come into existence, and so too, the vow does not come into existence. Okay, so can we learn from here that according to this part of the Braita, the rabbis for to be Eliezer are assuming that it does not uh, come into existence, the vow at all, even for a second. Uh, here's the problem, Emasefa, the continuation of that very Braita, includes yet another argument of the rabbis against Rabbi Eliezer, in which they say, They have a, a simpler Kavachomer, and they say, Rabbi Eliezer, you say that a vow um, that she took already in the past, the husband can nullify it, and that prohibition already exists, all the more so if she didn't take it yet and the prohibition doesn't yet exist. That's what you said. Um, let's compare this to a mikveh. If you can uh, dunk into the mikveh a vessel that um, is tameh and make it tahor, so you can take tum'ah, that was became tameh in the past, and make it tahor, so all the more so you should be able to take a, a vessel that's tahor and dip it now to prevent it from being tahor and becoming tameh in the first place, right? That would be the exact same logic, right? To be Eliezer, this is actually a much closer parallel than the than the previous uh, section of the Braita. Anyway, that's their point. And look at their language here, right? So Yatbilu Kili put a put a uh Kili in the mikveh now beforehand so that when it becomes Tameh it will become Tahor. From this language here you see that the the rabbis are assuming that it does in fact become Tameh and then immediately comes tahor, right? I have a uh, tahor bowl, and I'm going to dip it now. And I say so that when it becomes tameh tomorrow, it will immediately become tahor. So that shemamina chaylin. That means that uh, Rabbanan's assumption 
uh, in their understanding of Rabbi Eliezer is that it does take effect for a second and then goes away. Of course, this is part of an argument against Rabbi Eliezer, but nevertheless, it reflects the rabbi's understanding of, of, how, of the mechanism that Rabbi Eliezer is using. And so from this very, very same Baraita, we see the opposite conclusion. So what are we going to do with this Braita? You want to prove here that Lachailin, from the continuation of the Braita, we prove that it does take effect. So, um, therefore, we cannot accept either conclusion. Here's what the rabbis are saying. Um, so, we have to explain this, this, the, these two b'raitot, which are back-to-back, as follows. The rabbis, uh, we have to say, the rabbis do not uh, um, uh, agree with uh, like I mean, they couldn't think, couldn't figure out, they could not determine the reasoning of the Eliezer. and therefore they rejected him. And no matter what, this is what the rabbis are telling Rabbi Eliezer. My what's your opinion? If you think that when the woman makes a vow, it does appear for a second, but then the husband's preemptive statement nullifies it, then well, then we will um, uh, refute your opinion from this example of a bowl. Right where um, we we were assuming that chaylin, and nevertheless, this kavachomer will reject your uh, conclusion. And if you think that um, it does not come, it does not come into existence at all, not even for a moment. Well, then, then that's why we presented the first kavachomer and the, that the mikveh itself, comparing a mikveh to a person's body. There we were assuming la and we gave this uh, uh, ad absurdum argument, this kavachomer that doesn't work, to reject your argument that way. And and that's why these two but I thought are back to back. Even and and this that's why they assume the first one assumes La Chalin, the second one assumes Chalin, because the rabbis are saying, no matter what you think, or no matter which assumption you take, we have an argument to refute you. Um, therefore, we cannot determine from this set of two baraitot what the rabbis thought or what Rabbi Eliezer thought or what the rabbis thought Rabbi Eliezer thought because they're just presenting both options, but there is no determination um, uh, from this badaita at all. And on the next page, we'll see a last attempt um, to uh, answer this question. Baruch Adonai, Amen, Amen.